The Start On Demand. On demand. School zone photo radar. There are few topics that incite rage, like the mobile speed cameras, especially when they are out tagging people when the kids aren't in school, like it is right now during spring break. Our very own hockey correspondent Leah Hextall has landed a historic gig with ESPN, calling games for the NCAA. We'll tell you about a documentary on TSN about the most famous Winnipegger you maybe never heard of. His name is Kenny Omega, and he is the biggest wrestler on planet Earth. And would you bring outside food into a restaurant? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Wednesday, March 27th podcast for The Start. You know the law, and you know the punishment that comes with speeding in a school zone, and still, the very sight of mobile photo radar vans enrages many Winnipeg drivers. Global's Allison McKinnon hit one school zone yesterday for reaction. Even though students get to take a break this week, it doesn't mean drivers will get one if they're caught speeding through a school zone. Police say kids could still be in the area, and drivers need to be able to stop quickly. These are playground areas, these are hockey rinks, these are places where kids congregate not only during the school hours but obviously off hours including weekends. But people who fight the photo radar tickets say it's just another way for the city to make money. I think it's obvious they're looking for the revenue. Uh, that's one of the things that's always been about photo enforcement is the revenue they get from it. Of course, they tell us a different story. It's not about that. It's about the safety. Some drivers also struggle to understand why the ticketing isn't suspended during extended holidays like Christmas and spring break. You shouldn't speed through them, but I mean, 30 is just you're just crawling and then there's no kids. So it's just that it doesn't quite make sense. I think it's disgusting that they got photo radar. While others think it makes perfect sense. I think that maybe... Um, they should be in operation all the time because that kind of gets people in the mood, otherwise they will forget. The only time the photo radar vans aren't on duty in school zones is during July and August. So the school she was in front of yesterday, she apparently didn't have to go far. That's Global's Allison McKinnon to find uh, a mobile radar van. It was in front of Harrow School. And, uh, oh, there's, all, yeah. there's always someone there, there, right? There's always a van there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of just a, more of a norm for that area, which means there's probably a big problem there that, of people not slowing down. So I don't know, is it a revenue issue or is it a real enforcement problem that we have going on? Well, there's all. I knew I would find one on Monday. I went out. I was like, oh, yeah, spring break. I wonder if the – I knew they'd be out, so I went down St. Matthew. Sure enough, it's always there. And I was I was a little angry, careful picking my words here this morning, because he's parked in a bike lane. Oh, well, that's, that's fair to be okay. mad about that. Okay, so – and I have a, a genuine problem with this. I don't have a problem with the 30-kilometer-an-hour school zones at all. But you can't tell me on one hand that we don't that the reason they do this over this over Christmas break and spring break is so you don't forget about it when the kids go back to school. Then they should be in place 
12 months of the year the, without the, exception. And especially in the summer when kids actually go to parks, like to their school playgrounds to play. And in fact, I did notice a lot of kids out in the playground this week too because it's warmer out. So spring break actually makes sense to me. But then you should be doing it in the summer because kids are going to their school playgrounds to play and crossing at the same spots that they would have crossed two months earlier or two months later. Yeah, they're using if they're using it spring break, they're using it in the summertime. And the same argument cannot be made. It, you're not being consistent. And they're talking about doing this because of consistency. And if you're shutting it down over the su- summertime, guess what? It's not about consistency. The thing with that Harrow School, that can be applied to any street like it. Uh, they always parked just south of Harrow, or pardon me, of Cordon at Harrow. There was almost always a van there. There's a a school right there. There's another school zone further up the block. And they probably park there because here, while it's not a major thoroughfare, it is mm-hmm. one of those sort of cut through collector zones. streets. Yeah. And like Talbot, for example, not a super major thoroughfare, but Always a busy street. Always radar there as well on Talbot. And that's a street where you, you don't instinctively, even though you enter the school zone because it's Talbot, you feel like I should be driving faster. Whereas if you're on a side street and you enter a school zone, you, sh- you I always feel like I should be slowing down anyway because it's a residential street. You never know when a kid's going to pop out from behind a car. So I always tend to slow down anyway. But when you're on a street like that, there is this urge, this instinct to drive faster. So yeah, I could see why they park there because they probably tag a lot of people who either A, can't resist the urge to slow down or B, just don't realize, oh my God, this is a school zone. I wouldn't have expected there to be a school zone on a street like this. And we're getting already a flood of text messages. Greg, as you were saying, it should be year round. Uh, We got a text echoing that sentiment exactly from Bill saying photo radar should be non-existent or year round. Bang on, man. Drive by Amber Trail School during July, August. It is packed. It's busier than school days. Total scam. And I know it's kind of a broken record to revisit this topic, but hey, it is one of those that makes us mad. Well, you know, the chief did come out last year and say he was open to the idea of reviewing some of the places and spots that they were doing these in. The legislation's not set by him. It's set by the province or not set by the police force, rather. It's set by the province. And so there was talk of should we go back to the province or should authorities go back to the province and and, and change the law? They're just enforcing the law that's in place and set out by the province are they picking and choosing when and where maybe but that's that's the law and so that you almost you need to go back to the legislatures and say like have we actually done a cost analysis here on in these school zones when we're handing out tickets have we reduced speeds in those areas over the last few years because now we have a few years of data to collect on and then should we be changing it so we're doing it year-round or not during holidays at all. There has to be information out there that would show one way or another whether it's working, and then you can put to rest the revenue argument. If it's about safety, prove that it's about safety, and stick to it. Stick to your guns and say it's about safety. But when you meander back and forth between policies, people are going to question your intentions, and this is someone... I'm speaking now as someone who supports the 30 kilometer an hour zones around the schools, but I do not support uh, them cherry picking when they're going to be out there. And when it feels like a cash grab to me, that's when my radar goes up as well. We want to talk about bringing outside food into a restaurant, and this is based on something that Greg has observed when he was out in the wild yesterday. Greg, what did you see? Well, I stopped for a bowl of soup and a cup of tea and was just relaxing and noticed... Slow down, Greg. We can't keep up with your party lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) 
that was my that was my big afternoon yesterday. <laughs> Tea and soup. All I was missing was a crumpet. <laughs> Would have been perfect. Anyway, I observed a couple of guys, uh, well-dressed guys, having coffee, and then about halfway through their conversation, one guy reached into his briefcase and pulled out a Rubbermaid container with a homemade sandwich in it. And I'm looking, and I'm thinking, I think we're in an establishment that sells sandwiches. Found it odd for someone to bring it in, because I've been in other restaurants, but particularly ones that are close to schools where at lunchtime they get inundated with kids. They'll have 20 kids. Five of them are purchasing food and beverages. Jeff Forche, one of those is in our neighborhood. Oh, yes. You know the McDonald's I'm talking about. Yeah. And the manager <laughs> every single day is overwhelmed and trying to clear uh, these young people out that are non-paying, quote, customers. So I found it I found it bizarre. And being a former restaurant guy, it, 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 it curdled my blood you. just hmm. a tiny bit. But I wanted to know if I was overreacting because, well, as you may have gathered, I, I can do that from time to time. And they had time. something, right? They did have something. Yeah. They bought Correct. coffee. They and it's a coffee. place that specialized, like the drive-thru is the 80% of their business and that's, right? The restaurant was packed at oh, the really? time. It was yeah. it was just before 12 o'clock and it was full and the lineup was getting longer. In fact, I made I, I, I left quicker than I normally would because the lineup was growing. Were there people standing there with their trays of tea and soup that couldn't find a table? <laughs> Not quite, but it was about to become that situation. Anyway, wanted to throw it out there if I was the only one that, that scratched my head at it and go, yeah, that's not right. I think bringing outside food into a restaurant is wrong. You're going to a restaurant, which they're in business <laughs> of, they make their money by providing you, by selling you food. So if you go into a restaurant... Uh, you're essentially, with your own food, you're basically stealing from them. Fortier also pointed out about people bringing stuff into the movie theater. Absolutely. And uh, well, my buddy, uh, he came, went to a movie one time, and he brings in, he snuck in rather, a burger from Wendy's. And <laughs> the, the whole movie, he didn't eat it. He held on to the, the burger and the whole movie, I'm... I'm it's like a security burger yeah, or something? I, I, Was I, it I a horror know. movie? I, no, I don't know. I don't know uh, why I didn't eat it, but I kept turning to him going, Hey, hey, what are you doing? That's contraband. That's contraband. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get us kicked out of here. Especially because a burger you could well, smell. It'd be one thing bringing yeah. in a bag of chips or, or your own drink. But the My, burger, just unwrapping that, yeah, being well, like, that's clearly it. He held a junior whopper. Time. Do you guys know what kombucha is? Mm-hmm. My girlfriend sneaks it into the movie theater every single time. And oh, this stuff... Stinks. It well, stinks it and it can blow. Like shaking up a Coke and opening it, That even when you don't shake this kombucha, it, you got to like burp it carefully when you take the lid off. And it's loud and it you can, can be very messy. You open, it stinks. No? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, a, it's always an adventure. What is it, like a power you, drink? Or? No, it's a, it's a health drink. Oh, okay. And she's every, it just takes like 10 minutes for her to open the thing real. And she always picks the quietest part of the movie, too, to do it. And it's, <laughs> I, it's, I, it makes me laugh. I time. guess the only thing I would argue about, if we're talking specifically with the movies, uh, I I find the prices are yeah. quite high. So if you want to discourage people from sneaking stuff into the theater, then make your price point a little more equitable. 
Yeah, well, I think there that the, that might just boil down to basic supply and demand. If people are willing to buy it yeah, at those no. prices, <laughs> then they'll get that. Because that's Jeff. That's where they make most of their money at the movie, right? Is yeah, the almost stand? like eighty percent of it is from the mm-hmm. snacks. Yeah. 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 Ticket money has to go to the studio. Same right? if you go to yeah. a certain sporting events or whatnot, they yeah. want you to. Now, no. my only argument for some of these things, I would never bring in my own food to a restaurant. I don't think. But my, I have a son with a nut allergy, and so I've made yeah. the argument when I've gone to certain sporting events or whatnot, like I, I don't trust any of the snacks uh, because they sell peanuts in the very right. same thing, or they scoop them out. or So I have said I'm bringing in my own granola bars or whatnot because I don't trust any of the food here, and then that hasn't been an issue. Yeah, and if you're a family of four or five and you have someone with dietary concerns, I think it would be reasonable to tell the restaurant, you know, hey, listen— we're, four of us are going to eat, but our son or daughter here, we've had to bring food for them because we have to make sure they're going to be okay. Now, you're talking, now these are reasonable explanations and reasonable conversations to have with a, with a manager, but just overall sort of having the attitude oh, yeah, that no. this is my food court and I can bring whatever no. I want. No, eat at home if you're going to, if you're going to, or, or eat at the office. And that or would the be car, the frustration the for some of these restaurants yeah. next to schools, right? Because you're right, I have seen a lot. There's one, there's a McDonald's out by Grant Park that oh, yeah. you have kids, tons <laughs> of kids in there and they, they're probably great for business. So I'm, maybe they're doing a cost benefit analysis yeah. that if six kids come in and two bring their own lunch while the four kids are still eating there, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, what, what was almost, built first, the school or the McDonald's? Almost every one of these McDonald's right now as we speak is filling up with retirees about to have <laughs> nurse a small coffee for the next three hours right. while they chat with their friends. Yeah, maybe they'd like some of those kids to come in. Have Why are you looking at bag. me again? I don't know. <laughs> I thought I saw at, you there once. You should be looking <laughs> Greg, he's the one that likes his tea yeah. and soup and Look crumpets. at Mr. Tea and tomato yes. soup over here. It was potato <laughs> bacon soup. So you ordered a just a four dollar meal. Why don't you order something bigger, a full meal, so they can the restaurant yeah. that you love so much can make some money, Greg? I'm you ordered very, an appetizer. Come on. I'm very You're good. part of the problem. I'm very good for the restaurant <laughs> were, there, were there any empty seats at your table that you were there sitting were, at? There were, and I told you. I just said that I felt bad. They were getting busy, and I actually ex- expedited my, my exit from the restaurant because they were getting busy. In a moment, we want to talk about naming and shaming as it pertains to liquor stores, but we start by revisiting our one of our previous topics, and that is photo radar in school zones over the holidays. And I know we've been talking about this during the summer holidays, spring break, Christmas break, but the difference between summer holidays and spring break and Christmas break is they're allowed to enforce in summer holidays and spring break, but they, the law says it's legal to drive the normal speed limit during the summer. And so that has many asking, well, what's the difference? And is this really about safety or is it about uh, revenue? And so we've had some people text in to say, well, hang on, why wouldn't they be doing it in summer when they also have daycare programs that run at schools, which would see in some cases up to 100 kids crossing at those crosswalks? And then another mom writing in to say her kids... Um, regularly play in the playgrounds in the summer, and so she's upset about that. Uh, but others think, think that they're two, are we about two years into this, I think? It's it feels two, like two, two or three. three, maybe years, or uh, maybe three years, yeah. That it's that it's just a cash grab, and they're still furious with it, right? And so I think that, that we need to come up with that data um, because 
We need to prove that it is it or is it not a revenue issue. If it's about the children, one of our texters suggesting that if it is in fact about the children, and this person supports the idea of the thirty kilometer an hour zones and the enforcement, because thirty becomes forty, forty becomes fit. Right? If the posted speed limit is one thing, you know that there are people that are that are pushing the limit and and going ten percent above or or what have you. This person suggesting that if it is about safety, take the money and direct it to better playgrounds, to better programs at the schools. If it's about the quote unquote, if it's about the children, let's walk the walk on that. Keep texting us at 204-780-6868. This is uh, always a hot topic, and we love your feedback, uh, especially when you get all fired up. And a surprising hot topic for me is we just in the last segment talked about bringing food, outside food, into restaurants. And so many texters weighing in about the idea of like, because Greg, this goes off the idea, Greg saw someone bringing in a sandwich into Tim's yesterday that wasn't purchased at Tim's. And so we've had people weighing in saying, okay, well, what about if you have an allergy? Or what if you... um, Go to a, a gas station and use their washroom. Is that any different? I mean, if it's about paying for the product, then where's the line of whether you should use those facilities or not for other reasons? I think if you need to bring in food uh, into a restaurant, I don't have a problem with that as long as you're okay with them charging you a plating fee. Okay. If, if you want to come in and you say, hey, I've got this cake. We're having a family gathering. I want to serve this cake. And they say, hey, no problem, but we're going to charge you. Because this is our establishment and we serve this food. We right. have our own dessert. You want to serve your own dessert, that's fine, but we're going to charge you anyway. And as long as you're okay with that, I think that's fair. Well, one listener wrote to say there are fees for bringing in your own bottle of wine. There's corking fees. There's fees for bringing cakes into a birthday party. If I have a kid's party at one of those trampoline places or whatnot, you're charged for those sure. extra things. So you could do the same. Could Would a fast food restaurant really have the time to add that in or walk no. up to the person with the paper bag and say, I'm going to need 97 cents? Before you open up that paper bag with your apple in it. And the question uh, with regard to the, the washroom, I am one of those people, if I stop at a gas station, even if I'm on a road trip, and uh, the four Macklings pile out of a car and all go use the washroom, we are buying stuff at that gas station, whether it's gas or some other product. Uh, that's just the way I am. A lot of places won't even allow you to use their washroom unless you are a paying customer, like a lot of fast food. I, I can think specifically of the Burger King in Osborne Village uh, because I stopped there to use the washroom and I needed to get a key to get into it. So I think I had to buy a drink. Uh, to to access the washroom, and that's fair, you know. They, I think they, they want to because they want to keep people from just walking in to use a can and getting out. It's so. not a public service. It's not a public amenity. That's right. Hey, did you know Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries is now publishing the names of people caught stealing booze from its stores? We announced those sweeping, or we didn't announce the province announced the <laughs> Liquor and Lotteries announced those sweeping changes last week. We shared them with you, and they include a new mobile team of trained loss prevention officers stationed at certain stores, and new security teams that will have power to make citizens arrests and turn suspects over to police. As the CEO, Peter Hack, explained, it's all about safety and security, but we didn't know in this conversation that they were also going to be publishing names of those accused. And we're seeing this morning on their website that when they make those arrests, you can go on the site right now and find out who now in these week of changes has been stopped at the stores. And there's some 50 names on there, middle names, first names, last names, and the age. If I get arrested for committing a holdup, is my name not available somewhere on the internet as some as being charged with something if I get so the, the way it works right now is the police put out a news release on certain arrests, but 
not all arrests. That would can you imagine the amount of paperwork that would go into reporting every single person that's been arrested and charged in if the city I on a daily basis? Look for if you want to look for people, arrested? you'd have to know that that person's been arrested. Mm. There's no list anywhere of just the arrests from here's March twenty fifth. Here's, here's Monday's arrest. Here's Monday's arrest rap sheet. Okay. Right. So if I heard that Greg Macklin had been arrested, I could email the courts and find out if, you, in fact, that was true, if you had been charged with something, not arrested. And right, so, of course, arrested so and charged. There isn't a public list available of every single arrest made every single day. The police will put out a list at Christmas time, for example, of impaired driving arrests. But this is this is something different. And, and we've seen lists in the past of people who uh, try to engage in the sex trade industry, and those have been published in different websites. But this is this is a Crown Corporation posting the names of people arrested and or charged, but not convicted on their website. And I'm, I'm not sure if people have an issue with that or not. Have you ever walked into a gas station? Speaking of gas stations and seen in small towns in particular, uh, back when paying by check was a thing, bounced a check, what do they do? They put it on the window, right? They or put the it counter. on the window. Yeah, you drive off. You drive off without paying for your gas. Hey, there's going to be a picture of your license plate in the window. Do not serve this person. Be on the outlook for this person. I have zero problem with it. I wouldn't have a problem with it if it was repeat offenders. I'm not sure about the first time person on a, say, $20 bottle of alcohol. I don't know. I don't know if it's fair. We, we don't put out every single person arrested for every single crime in the city. We start this half hour with our own Hextall in hockey who is taking her magic pipes to ESPN. Yeah, Leah Hextall would become the first woman to do play-by-play for the NCAA Men's Hockey Championship this weekend. Brandon Zone has been calling women's hockey games on Sportsnet, including last weekend's Clarkson Cup. And Leah Hextall joins us now. Leah, congratulations. Well, thank you very much, guys. I have to say, just even hearing it is um, a little overwhelming when I actually hear it out loud. (laughs) In many ways, Leah, my first thought was yesterday was, what do you mean we haven't had a woman do play-by-play for the NCAA? And it kind of shows you how far we've come and how far we still have to go. What are your thoughts just on, on that gender line that still exists sometimes when it comes to calling sports? You know, Loren, I'm not even sure if it's a gender line when it comes to the play-by-play role. I think it's just the fact that, you know, when I started my sports broadcasting career, and when you think of my background and being around hockey all my life, when I walked through the door at CKX and Brandon, my goal was to work for Hockey Night in Canada because as a reporter or a studio host, because that's what I had seen growing up. And I never thought about, oh, I could do play-by-play one day because I didn't see women doing it. I don't think there has ever been someone closing a door saying, no, we don't want women in this role. I think more so that it's a very unique and different skill. And I can say that wholeheartedly because I'm actually trying to do it right now. You need to know not only how to broadcast well, which takes years to do, as all of you know, but you also need the skill of understanding the game at a different type of level, at a very fast level, which takes many years to accomplish as well. So I really don't know if it's a door that was ever closed as more so a woman saying, I would like to do this. Leah, for those that don't know, who is Mike? Most people in the sporting world call him Doc Emmerich. And what's the role he's played for you in achieving and taking this next step? 
Well, a big smile just came to my face when you said his name. His name is Mike Doc Emmerich. Everybody knows him as Doc. He is the lead play-by-play voice for NBC Sports, and he's also a Hall of Famer. Um, Doc Emmerich is someone who was the first person that I reached out to when I thought I want to try doing play-by-play. And he's been just a tremendous mentor to me. He was the one who told me very early that being able to get reps is going to be very difficult. It's difficult for anyone. So he told me to get into an empty booth at a junior game or wherever I could find one and just start calling the game. And that's exactly what I did here. I reached out to the Manitoba Moose, who I have a relationship with, and thank you to their communications guy, Daniel Fink, because almost every home game, you will see me in a box at Manitoba Moose games, just the crazy lady all by herself talking out loud. But that's what I'm doing. I'm practicing the game. So that little nugget of information to do that, that's where I get my rats. I've only had eight games on national television with Sportsnet to call the women's game, but I've done probably 50 if you include over the last year and a half doing home games just out loud to myself. There's nothing like doing a real game, but I do my very best to get simulations when I can. And Doc is just really, he watches my, you know, my games, he sends me notes, and to get that kind of information from somebody who has done it all you just really can't buy that. It's it's so special. And on top of that, he's probably one of the nicest humans you'll ever meet. Well, you just, I think, explained to us why, you know, many of us armchair athletes, when we're sitting there watching a sport on television, if someone's put in the practice like you have, it does seem effortless, which makes people think, oh, well, I could do that. But you're clearly telling us there's just hundreds of hours that we don't even know about that go in to prepping for each and every game that you call. So tell us about the, the tournament this weekend of the championship and what you're now trying to learn as you head. Uh, well, where are you going, first of all, and what are you trying to learn? Uh, I'm going to Providence, Rhode Island, and starting on Saturday for the first time, it's just such a tremendous challenge for me because the first time in my career so far in play-by-play, I'll be calling back-to-back games. We have games at 1 and 4.30 Eastern. So then on Sunday, we have the championship game for the East Regional. So really what this is is that there's 16 teams left. They will all go to four different regionals, four teams at each one, and the winners go to the Frozen Four in Buffalo in a couple weeks. So I'll be taking care of the East Regional, and what I'm trying to learn is a league that I don't talk about, a league that I don't cover, and that's four college hockey teams, and it's an immense amount of content to learn in that time. It's about 100 numbers and names that I've never heard of before, but I've been spending the last 48 hours just immersed since we found the teams on Sunday. And uh, it's it's a lot. It's uh, just even talking about it, I start to get anxious because there's a part of me that wonders, you know, can I get it all done? But I'm not the only one in that boat. Our entire technical team and production team and what I've learned by doing the World Cup of Hockey with ESPN in 2016 is they are the sports leader for a reason. And, you know, for a girl who started her career at CKX to know that this is her second stint working for ESPN, there's a reason they're the best because they uh, they will do nothing but set you up to succeed. Leah, what kind of feedback have you gotten from viewers so far in the games that you have called? Has any of it been negative? Yeah, of course there is. I mean, you guys know better than anybody that social media is such a lovely thing. (laughs) Um, And, (laughs) you know, so of course there's those negative comments. But I would say that overwhelmingly it's been very positive. And, you know, I'm really appreciative of that because I make a lot of mistakes when I'm calling games because I am literally learning on national television how to do something. And it's a very scary space to be. So I'm really, really actually quite pleased with how supportive people have been of me because they see what I'm trying to do. 
I am trying to do something and put a different voice more than anything to the game of hockey. Leah, they couldn't just send you down Pemina Highway to Fargo. They had to send you all the way to Providence, Rhode Island. What, what does that say about the, their love for you here? Well, you know, I have to say I'm, I'm very excited. I'm, I'm rejoining someone that I worked with at Nesson when I worked at Boston and Billy Jaffe. So I have some familiarity with Billy. I think that probably played into it. It helps to have somebody that you know standing beside you, supporting you in that role. Um, they've put me in a place to succeed. I have very veteran producers, directors. And I'm really excited to head back to New England. I haven't been there since I left Boston when, at my time when I was working at Nesson, and I'm going to get a chance to see a lot of colleagues that I haven't seen for years. When I worked in Boston, I did cover Hockey East, the college hockey there for two seasons. So two of my teams are Hockey East teams in Providence and Northeastern, and they have the same coaches. So it's going to be a little bit of a reunion. I'm looking forward to getting on the plane tomorrow. And, um, you know, at some point we got to call these hockey games, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Super proud of you, Leah. Congratulations one more time. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for having me on today. I truly do appreciate the support. And a big thank you to Kelly Moore, who has just been just a beautiful, beautiful man in the way that he has supported me since the first day I walked into CTV Winnipeg. Leah Hextall joining us live on 680 CJOB. She will become the first woman to do play-by-play for the NCAA Men's Hockey Championship this weekend, calling the games in the East Regional Semifinals in Providence, Rhode Island. She is, of course, from our very own Hextall in hockey, heard on this show Tuesdays and Thursday mornings at 7.55 and throughout the day and, of course, on the CJOB Sports Show throughout the week. So she is an authority. Yeah, and You, you will respect her authority. But she's so effortless when she talks about sport, and I think that just when she was saying it, about how she practices and goes to moose games and pretends to call the games and does all the things that you would do to try to be better at anything that you want to become and to know that she's getting there and achieving those dreams, man, that brought tears to my eyes. I'm I'm so happy for her. And one of our listeners says she makes things so understandable for a novice sports fan gal like me. I really look forward to hearing her on a regular basis. Congratulations, Leah. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb airing tonight on TSN is a documentary about a supremely talented Winnipegger. It's called Omega Man, a wrestling love story. Dale Burstein is the executive producer of Omega Man, a wrestling love story. Don Callis is also from Winnipeg, and he is the vice president of Impact Wrestling, the second biggest wrestling company in the world. You may know him more as a former professional wrestler. He was once upon a time known as the Jackal, as well as Cyrus. He's one of the best color commentators out there. So, Don, what is so special about Winnipeg and its relationship with wrestling? You know, I think if you just look at, it's not a quantity thing, it's a quality thing. You look at um, the guys who have made it from here are some of the bigger names in the history of the business. And I think it stems down to if you are from Winnipeg, it is not easy uh, to become a success in pro wrestling. And because there wasn't an established full-time territory here, it meant you had long rides in the winter, et cetera. So the guys who actually got through that crucible, if you will, um, you know, really wanted it and were able to overcome a lot in their careers because if you could get through that crucible, you could get through anything. Kenny ran a different kind of gauntlet, and that gauntlet was very much uh, a business that looked down on guys his size, a business that looked down on the style that he was trying to do, a business that looked down on people trying to break the paradigm of what pro wrestling was. 
So he had to go through that, which in some ways is as tougher, tougher than what Chris Jericho and myself and Piper went through. So what is it about Kenny Omega that's made him one of the most popular, if not the most popular wrestler on the planet right now? Well, you know, he's. it starts with he's a great wrestler. You know, are there other guys that can do some of the things that Kenny can do? Absolutely. Kenny is a guy, though, that puts all of those packages together And then I think more than that, I think that Kenny came along at the right time at a time when the business became more open. Um, So you have that with the technology available now where you can interact with talent. And Kenny is a guy who is a very kind person, and that kind of came through. And I think he started leveraging fans who otherwise weren't following pro wrestling, um, and it just kind of built from there. So as he said, Dale Burstein is the executive producer of Omega Man. And our question for you, Dale, is why make this film? I had no background or knowledge of wrestling prior to this this film. I actually probably would have avoided, uh, you know, even exploring something like wrestling. I didn't understand if it was a sport. Uh, I was asked to contribute a film to TSN's um, Engraved on a Nation series, which highlights very... um, you know, positive and inspiring stories in the world of sport, Canadians who have made a difference. And um, when the topic of wrestling came up, I was just like, no way, you know. Um, but then I learned about Kenny, and Kenny, uh, first of all, I'm from Winnipeg. Kenny's from Winnipeg. Uh, I heard he was the most compelling person in the world of wrestling today, and I wondered why I'd never heard of him. And then, well, that's just me because I'm not interested in wrestling. But I was speaking to many people I know in sports and sports media and from Winnipeg, and they never heard of him. So I'm like, how could this guy be so great internationally and we don't know him? So that intrigued me. Um, When I learned more about Kenny and realized that he had targeted Japan as uh, the style of wrestling he wanted to pursue, you know, what what is it about Japan and Kenny? And I found out that, like, he basically um, always loved Japanese culture, other art forms of uh, animation and video games, but he loved the Japanese style of wrestling. He taught himself Japanese and moved to Japan on his own, and that really amazed me. But I I have to say that really what made us do the film is that Kenny has had a 10-year storyline with uh, with a Japanese man, Kota Bushi, and they're known as the Golden Lovers, and it's a a sort of same-sex love story. And that amazed me in wrestling in what I would have assumed is a very sort of macho world that there existed this beautiful, respectful love story between two men. And that was sort of the clincher for me to make this film. And as we got to learn about Kenny, he's a truly fascinating guy. He's a genius in his world. Um, He's very compelling. Don, Dale mentioned the Japanese style of wrestling. So what is different about Japanese wrestling compared to what we're familiar with here in North America? It's a different style. There's a lot less focus on the entertainment side of it, a little bit less focus on the storyline side of it. Um, It tends to be a little more physical. Um, But the the other interesting thing is there's a lot more women at the shows, and a lot of that has been, frankly, Kenny and Ibushi because they appeal to men, women, children, older people, wrestling fans, non-wrestling fans. They've brought a lot of people who otherwise were not coming to Japanese wrestling shows to Japanese wrestling shows. And uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling continues to benefit that as when I was there just last month, um, there's still a lot of women that come to the shows. And that's cool because 
obviously you don't want to limit yourself to one customer base. So that's been a bit of a sea change in Japan, and that's one of the big differences. That is Don Callis. Uh, Winnipegger, he is the vice president of Impact Wrestling, the second biggest wrestling company in the world. And he consulted and was part of a documentary airing tonight on TSN called Omega Man, a wrestling love story, part of their series Engraved on a Nation, which was executive produced by Dale Burstein, who is also from Winnipeg. Now, and we know TSN is a competition, but this story is about Winnipeg and Dale, you mentioned you knew nothing about wrestling going into this. What did you learn while making this documentary about Winnipeg's own Kenny Omega? Kenny says in the documentary a lot is that this world is very misunderstood. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions about wrestling. Um, what is so surprising to me, uh, well, so many things were surprising to me in, in learning about it, but is is just how athletic it is and how... Um, artistic it is. I didn't understand when we were speaking with Kenny, he kept talking about himself and other wrestlers as storytellers. And, you know, that was just a concept I couldn't wrap my head around. Like, you know, what, what do you mean you're a storyteller? And now he, along with Chris Jericho, another Winnipegger, um, and some other top wrestlers started their own league. And that's amazing. I mean, they're taking on a mammoth uh, organization and um, and they're going to do it their own way. Um, and in fact, come May uh, in Las Vegas, Kenny uh, and Chris Jericho are in a match together. So it's it's just amazing two Winnipeggers, not just the top in the country, but the top in the world. And again, I think it's just very interesting that a lot of people don't know about them and their accomplishments. And uh, you know, I, this is very informal. Um, research on my part, but I was trying to see like which which maybe you guys have a, a sense of this. Which Winnipeggers have the most Twitter followers? Which Winnipeg celebrities? Um, and I don't know if anyone can beat Chris Jericho, and I'm sure no. Kenny's you know right up there. That is Dale Burstein, executive producer of Omega Man, a wrestling love story about Kenny Omega, Winnipeg's own Kenny Omega, who is the biggest wrestler on the planet. We also heard from Don Callis, also from Winnipeg, vice president of Impact Wrestling. Very cool story. And as I was saying to you guys earlier, I I don't know who he is at all. And I didn't really know much before you said this documentary is coming out and even just doing some of the quick Google searches and whatnot. I mean, it's crazy, his following. And to think, as you've put, he's this Winnipegger that if you're not watching wrestling, you don't know. But there's millions of people who would know his name if you went to other countries is wild. There's a whole other level to this story as well. And you might want to Google about that and Google about Kenny Omega and some of the questions that might be asked and answered in this documentary with regards to sexual orientation, Kenny Omega's relationship with the LBGTQ community as well. Uh, a, a huge part of this story would just barely scratch the surface in this conversation with Dale and Don. Thanks to both of them. Now, Greg, a few weeks back, you learned something that made you hate Saskatchewan even more. Yes, uh, the rumors that the Oakland, soon-to-be Las Vegas Raiders and Green Bay Packers were heading to Regina for a week three. <laughs> I can't even say it without getting frustrated. A week three NFL preseason game. Well, yesterday, word was that Regina was out and would not host the game in the same breath. 
were beliefs that Edmonton and Winnipeg are now vying for this game. And in the last several hours, it appears as though Edmonton has removed themselves from the conversation. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers offered a very vague response to the rumors. In the words of our own Kelly Moore, they didn't say yes, but they didn't say no either. The spectacle would take place in mid-August during week three of the preseason schedule. IGF, very busy in August. The Blue Bombers have a CFL regular season home game on the 8th and 15th. And Valor FC of the Canadian Premier Soccer League will also be playing at home August 17th, 22nd, and 28th. Now, of course, the CFL and NFL NFL field have different dimensions, goalpost location, etc. There are certain things that would have to be changed at IGF to accommodate this game. So we want to go to Saskatchewan and find out what the feelings are there about Regina pulling out of this game. Rod Peterson joins us from Regina, 20 years the voice of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And and Rod, why didn't this game end up being played at Mosaic Stadium? Do we know? Uh, Good morning, guys. I think there's a few reasons. And as of last night, uh, talking to some of the factions involved in the story, the, the the, store, the game isn't dead yet. There's still a chance that it could be played in Saskatchewan and specifically Regina. It has to do with the timing of the game. The Riders are home Saturday. Uh, the NFL game was originally slated for Friday. What I'm told is that uh, you know the Raiders are amenable to playing this game on the Thursday, moving it up a day. Uh, the organizers, there's a lot of people, guys, that want this game to be played in Regina. Chief among them, the city of Regina, Everaz Place, which is the grounds which houses the stadium, they want it. And believe me, the fans want it. If you want to know what the feeling is here, um, it hasn't been a very good 24 hours for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders because the report was that from CJME that the riders are the ones blocking this game. And the riders sent out a statement yesterday saying, oh, we would accommodate the game, but we can't flip our stadium over in time from the NFL game to the CFL game. I believe that's about the fourth or fifth reason why the Saskatchewan Rough Riders don't want this game in what they feel is their stadium. Um, What's the first reason? I don't think that they want to give up revenue to the NFL. I think they think that every dollar spent on the Raiders or the NFL is not a dollar being spent on their football club and revenue for them. I, I think that's number one. Number two, I don't think they want to give up their stadium. And number three, I don't think they want their field tinkered with. That's what I think it is. And then when you get into flipping the stadium over, that's reason four or five. Those are my thoughts, and it's got fans raging. Fans really got their hopes up that this game was coming. Like I said, it's not dead yet. Um, but, yeah, Winnipeg is in the running for sure. I own a business in Regina, a restaurant downtown. I mean, the business owners aren't happy if the, the plug gets pulled. The riders weren't cut in on the profits for this game. Maybe the Blue Bombers will be if it moves to Winnipeg. I'm not sure, but this would have been a financial economic boom for the rider, for the city and the province. And uh, if it's not played, there's going to be some very upset people. I only see these events as win-win propositions for communities like Winnipeg, like Regina. And it's odd that you'd be getting this sense from uh, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders because they're already giving up their home field for a hockey game in October. So that that doesn't almost doesn't mesh in my mind that they they don't want their field tinkered with, etc. Rod, uh, they're they're doing it for something that they know is going to take a ton of money out of the economy in in the sense that you, you framed it just a moment or two ago yeah well we're, we're all entitled to our opinions that's mine 
the the argument for it, and this is what I've been trying to figure out, and I'll just admit that I don't watch a lot of NFL, but I, I'm a big fan of the CFL. What What is the driving passion in any community to bring a team south of the border here? Is it just sort of the fact that most Canadians, or at least in the prairies, don't get a chance to see these teams? I mean, what is it that has people saying, yes, please bring them north? Well, the NFL owners' meetings are going on in Phoenix right now, and this this game itself has been talked about down there. The Raiders are going to play this home game in Canada somewhere. And the the information I got last night is the Raiders don't really care whether it's Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, or Edmonton, but it's going to be played in Canada, period. Obviously, they have their own stadium issues in Oakland. They're going to be moving to Las Vegas, as you guys said off the top. They want to expose the game to Canada. I don't know if you guys talked about it this morning, Bob Irving's tweet last night about any stadium or team that wants to, in the CFL, that wants to host an NFL team should have their franchise revoked. I respectfully disagree with Bob. I mean, football is football. Uh, it's a novelty item. We don't get a lot of NFL exposure here on the Prairies. Let's be honest. Uh, Southern Ontario, they do. Buffalo's not that far away for the people in the GTA to travel to. But for Oakland, well, the other thing that I was told last night by one of the groups, one of the parties in this situation is the Raiders wanted to put an imprint on Saskatchewan, sort of like the Vegas Golden Knights have as their fan base. They see a lot of football fans up here. They just want to expand their brand within Canada and within the province of Saskatchewan. That's why Regina was ideally locale number one. Interesting. But they're coming to Canada. Yeah, they're coming to Canada no matter what. It's just whether it's going to be Winnipeg, Edmonton, or Regina. And I think the organizers of this and the city of Regina still want it to be played in Regina for all the reasons that I outlined. All right. Well, I'm just looking at this tweet that you mentioned about Bob last night, and he got tons of feedback and uh, oh, yeah. a lot of people pushing back against him on that. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, Rod Peterson, thank you for joining us from Regina. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Always good to catch up with you, Rod. And I think this would be great for the city of Winnipeg. I think it would be great for the city of Regina. Had conversations with some friends over the weekend and say, hey, would you guys go out to Regina? It's like, well, we're going for the Heritage Classic already. One trip to Regina. Uh, is enough Pushing in a year. And limits. then, of course, you've got people that already go for the Labor Day Classic. So yeah. three trips to Regina in one year? Yeah. Let's not get but, crazy. And, and maybe you can help me understand this. When they talk about the cost-benefit of something like this, so you bring the NFL North, it gets exposure to the city, which is good for overall economic impact. Mm-hmm. But who gets the money from the game? Well, in in this case, uh, the the way we imagine that it would happen is that the Blue Bombers, if it comes to Winnipeg, would purchase the game from the National Football League for a set amount, and then just like a concert, and hope they to get would, the revenue from it. Correct. They would set the ticket prices based on on a sellout, hopefully, and they would make the difference in the, in the revenue and the exposure, uh, bringing people to the stadium. It's one more big name event, and these ancillary revenues from secondary events outside of your main focus, whether you're a hockey team or or a football team are the things that allow you to be ultra competitive. It keeps money in the bank. Mackling McGarry and McNabb, McNabb question of the day at CJOB.com. I said Manab. I think I've still got her Mano pun <laughs> stuck in my head. Let me know. <laughs> question of the day at CJOB.com brought to you by Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace 204-832-6243. What should we do? What should be done with photo radar in school zones? And so far at CJOB.com, 58% of voters say keep it the way it is, but 
No enforcement during holidays. Hmm. 23% say make it year-round or not at all. And the rest say keep it the way it is, period. Log on to cjob.com. And we also put a similar poll on our 680CJOB Instagram story. We would love for you to follow us there. Maybe you just didn't shake out the cod webs before coming to work this morning. Oh, yes. Oh, you are one so fish-decated guy. <laughs> <laughs> How many fish puns are there? There's so millions. many. Millions. Come on. Literally Our guest is millions. laughing, and she's a writer, so it's like she's saying to me. But is it a, is it a laugh, <laughs> ha-ha, or laugh? I don't care. She can oh, laugh at boy. me. She can laugh with me. <laughs> she can laugh for me. I don't care. Well, our guests, if we wanted to reintroduce you to someone <laughs> who is an award-winning author of nine books and someone who has explored a haunted forest in Romania, the fourth book in her supernatural suspense series, Ghost Riders, has just been released in the last seven days. It's called Forest of Ghosts, and she joins us now in studio. Say hello to J.H. Moncrief. J.H., hello there. Hello. Thanks for having me again. Can you write a fish pun? On the mm. spot, putting you on the spot here. Oh, oh there's something fishy fair. about this. Yeah. <laughs> that definitely wasn't fair. <laughs> no, I, I don't like you. Uh, so this, I, I got to ask you, the haunted forest in Romania. What? So first of all, what brought you to tour? The, where is it, I guess? Let's start there. Where in Romania is this forest? Uh, it's in Cluj-Napaca. And that is a ways away from Baran, which is where the horror writers retreat in Transylvania that I went for was. So um, when I found out that I was going to the horror writers retreat in Transylvania and it just so happened the most haunted forest in the world was also in Romania, I figured out a way that I could see both while I was there. I have so many questions now because she just <laughs> said a horror writers retreat, which who knew, knew that existed, let alone the haunted forest. So I'm going to start with the retreat. So you're invited there because this is sort of your your genre, what you're into. And well, it's, then it's one of them. Yeah. I love dark fiction. You love dark fiction. And so you all get together to trade ideas then? Or how does that work? Like yeah. I picture a retreat. If it was a meditation retreat, you'd all get together <laughs> and meditate. Do you all get together and swap scary stories or how does it work? We had an instructor who was a published author and he basically taught us. It was like an intensive workshop almost. So the retreat part is kind of misnomer because it's not like we were going to a spa. We were basically learning how to write better and listening to him write and listening to him read and trading ideas and stories. And Was the forest haunted once you got in there? Did you feel that? Uh, well, the thing about this forest is it affects different people differently. It can make you, people have had uh, rashes, they felt disoriented, they felt nauseous, they've gotten, they feel like someone's watching them. With me, I got very, very ill. That's uh, fascinating because there's nothing like in news sending a reporter to be on the spot and to tell a story there. So when you're talking Transylvania, this is sort of the epicenter Mm -hmm. of this genre of writing, right? This is the home of Count Dracula. Exactly. We were on the, where the inn where I was staying was on the same street as Castle Dracula. Oh my. Grand Cross Castle. Wow, wow. What's it look like? like? Like, is it creepy just to see it? Like I'm uh, imagining. Is it always dark there? Does the sun ever <laughs> come up? Romania or the castle or the forest? The forest. The forest is, it seems when you walk in, it seems very peaceful. It seems very beautiful. There's birds singing, everything. Because I was like, are there going to be no birds? Are there going to be no animals? Um, but when you go in, you notice that every tree is deformed. Mm. Every single tree is deformed. Either they're shaped like harps or they've got huge growths on them or they're curved funny. There's no normal trees. And there's also this weird green mist that will just be around one single tree. 
So I found that very strange. And the, my guide said, oh, that must be humidity in the air. And I'm like, around one tree? Oh, I was going to say, there's going to be the skeptics that would say, <laughs> okay, well, they're deformed or there's that mist because of some sort of scientific explanation or that, you know, that's just maybe an illness befouled all these trees years ago. It's strange. It's really strange. And there's a, when you first come to the forest, there's a huge clearing for no reason at all, where nothing grows except grass and some wildflowers, no trees. And it's shaped in a big circle, perfect circle, huge. And they've done tons of testing in the soil. They can't figure out why, but this is also a hotbed of UFO sightings too, this Mm. forest. So UFOs, people going missing. It was named for a shepherd who years and years and years ago vanished in the forest with his flock of 200 sheep. Never seen again. So that's who the forest is named after. And sorry, what's the name of the forest? I just want to look it up right now. Hoibachu. How do you spell that? H-O-I-A. Yeah. And then B-A-C-I-U. Oh, my God. Uh, the, okay. <laughs> the images that popped oh, yeah. up are giving me nightmares for sure. <laughs> so how long were you in it? I was in there for a couple of hours. I was supposed to be there longer, but um, because of some complications happened in the morning, we had to leave earlier than expected and... My guide thought was saying, oh, I'm so sorry, we don't have more time. And I was thinking, thank God we don't have more time because <laughs> my stomach was hurting so bad. I had a migraine as soon as we got in there. And I just, I was really afraid something horrible was going to happen in the forest that was not supernatural. So by the time we got out, as soon as we left the tree cover, my migraine was gone, like just instantly. So I, I do get a lot of headaches. I've never had one come on that suddenly and then just go. But it took about an hour until my stomach was okay again. That is just bizarre. So is that the inspiration then of Forest of Ghosts, the latest book? Definitely. I knew once I wanted to set something in Transylvania, I had to include that forest because it's so wonderfully creepy and there's so many myths about it and so much legend. I like your use of the term wonderfully creepy because there can be good to that. If people are into that, it's about creating that suspense that comes with places like that. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And it's it's an interesting place to visit just because of how you feel. Like I never felt that someone was watching me, but I felt just so incredibly ill. And you start to feel very almost um, like something's weighing down on you. You start to feel almost claustrophobic after a while. So what's the enticement? What's the attraction to feeling this way and creating literature that might in turn make others feel this way? That's a great question. Uh, I think there's that titillation factor that, ooh, maybe I'll see something. Maybe I'll experience something. It's exciting, right? Like something might happen. Maybe you'll, you know, experience something otherworldly. But then again, whenever that actually does happen, it's scary as hell. So, yeah, it's hard to, maybe it's a masochistic thing. Well, and that that, that happened, uh, like I was in, I stayed at Hotel Fort Gary mm-hmm. last month. And I wasn't in the room, but I knew that the, the hotel was... You know, all this discussion about it being haunted. And any anytime I heard anything, I was genuinely like scared. I thought it would be cool, and then I realized, no, this isn't cool. I am really scared right now. If if I see a ghost, I'm I'm out of here. I'm jumping out the window or something. I will flee. So when you were in the forest and you felt that migraine, did you have to fight an urge to flee? I just felt so horrible. Like I was just in so much pain. So I think what I was doing was just trying to make it seem like I was fine because I didn't want my guide to know how sick I was. Um, I don't know why. Maybe being Canadian, just being polite. (laughs) I don't don't know why I didn't just tell him how horribly ill I was feeling, because I was really afraid I was going to be violently ill. Um, So, yeah, I was just trying to to get through it and trying to observe as much as I can and taking a bunch of pictures, but that mist was pretty 
that was odd. I've never seen anything like that before. So when you take stories like these, and, you're, and even as you're talking right now, I can buy into it. I, I like this kind of um, genre or, or in a film or in a book. And I, I certainly like that kind of edgy, suspenseful feeling. I don't want to be gore. I don't want the gory, but I no. like the suspense feeling. Do you, do you write for a person who already is feeling like that? I mean, or, or how do you reach out to the person who doesn't buy into any of this at all and says, this is just nonsense? Well, for me, it's all about the characters. I kind of have a weird process where my characters come to me and start talking and I have to tell their stories. Sure. So this being a series now, I'm four books in, I know these people really, really well, and they do seem like real people to me. So I just tell their stories the best way I can. I'm not really thinking consciously of the reader when I write, uh, because I think if you do, it really, really hinders you. If you're worried about, oh, are people going to like this? Are people going to, is this going to resonate with them? Are they going to leave me a bad review? Are they going to, it just cripples you. It really does. Are they coming to you, for example, when you're in the forest and you're walking through there and you're thinking and and suddenly you picture this person in your mind as a character or a name or or is it an actual speaking to you in in lines kind of way? Are they actually speak to me. I know that sounds insane, <laughs> but they do. But not then. At that point, I hadn't even been published yet when I when I went to Transylvania. I, I was getting close, but I hadn't published a book yet. So how, how has your relation changed with these characters over the books? Is it is it more intimate? Are, are there are there are, are there things that even surprise you that come out as you're channeling these characters? Oh, they always surprise me. I I never know what my ending is going to be. And with Force of Ghosts especially, the ending was really, really hard. I kind of wrote myself into a corner where Jackson's abilities didn't work. Kate's abilities didn't work. And I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I'm like, so at that point, you just have to say, well, I hope you guys have got it figured out. And uh, yeah, go on. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you tell me what to write and I'll write it. But it does seem, yeah, whether it's your subconscious doing it or a muse or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, you get to know them super, super well and get to know their dynamics well. So this Saturday, Millennium Library, 1 to 4 p.m., you've got a free writing workshop. What will you be teaching? I'll be teaching, it's billed as a horror thriller writing workshop, but it's really just about creating and maintaining suspense. So it's for anything, anyone, any book, nobody wants to write a book that you can just put down easily, right? So it's any sort of genre will work. It's just about how to get readers turning your pages. Okay, that's happening one to four. And for more information on J.H. Moncrief, the website is jhmoncrief.com. And you can also follow her on social media. And again, the name of that forest, in case you're curious and you want to see these weird trees. They are. They're, they're like spaghetti, bent spaghetti noodles. I can't even explain what I'm looking at. It's so odd. Yeah, it is freaky. It's spelled H-O-I-A. B-A-C-I-U for us. Just all you got to do is type in H-O-I-A and Google will fill the rest because that's what happened for yeah, me. Yeah, I'm looking at the pictures now. Absolutely incredible. There are just a few spots left for this seminar. People need to register, correct? Yes, they do. Uh, last I checked last night, there was only 13 left. So mm. it's filling up pretty fast. J.H. Moncrief, her name. She is a Winnipeg author. And again, her latest book, Forest of Ghosts, just released last week. J.H., thank you for stopping by for the visit. We appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. 
And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.